0: Please turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 and we read together the whole chapter. But with the Lord's help, we hope to give particular attention. Particular attention to verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. While well, we consider that verse in particular in the context of all of Scripture, let us read together Revelation chapter 21 and hear the word of the Lord our God. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And they came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high that had twelve gates, and the gates twelve angels, and the names were written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel." On the East three gates, on the north three gates, on the South three gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he talked with me, he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysphorus, the eleventh a Jacinth the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass." And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And thus far our reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of our God. May the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ add his blessing to the reading of his word this evening. You ever look at the world? Maybe you look at your family. Maybe you look at your work. Maybe you look at your health. And you think to yourself, what is God doing? You just don't know. It just doesn't make sense. You don't understand what the Lord is up to. Now maybe you've said that to yourself as you're driving to work back and forth from the doctor's office, lying in bed at night. Maybe you've said it with a broken heart and tears in your eyes. Maybe you've said it in the midst of most desperate circumstances. What is God doing? When we think of what's happened in our country recently amidst the political turmoil, when we look at what's happened in the past two years, it would seem, for COVID-19... Maybe, brothers, as you've had the Synod agenda set before you personally and in our consistory meetings, you wonder, Lord, what are we going to do? Lord, what is happening? Lord, what is thy will? And Lord, how will we come through? It's a very important question. And the children of God know when they don't have an answer to that question, it can be quite challenging. But as we'll see, the same answer that always gives children of God comfort and strength and hope to that very same question, what is God doing? Will give comfort and strength to us, brothers, for the business of our synod and congregation for you and the different callings you all have in your life and for the leading the Lord is giving your congregation, it will be the same comfort he's shown you. Indeed, for all of us who are gathering together physically or those who are joining the worship service as it were through the electronic means, that same question that always comes back, what is God doing? We will always find the same comfort we need when we hear that answer. Well, then what is it? What is God doing? The book of Revelation tells us. The book of Revelation tells us beautifully and marvelously, the book of Revelation is really a commentary, so to speak, on what will, as the Apostle John puts it, come to pass in a short time from the time of his writing. And we could say even according to the contents and the cycles of the book itself, from the time of the Lord Jesus' first coming to the time when he comes again. It is a commentary explaining god's plan through a cycles of beautiful symbols to express the glories of god and all his great work but not only forward but backward we could go through the book of revelation and see it not only the explanation and commentary on what god is doing now and yet to come but on what has happened in the past to use the language of the book itself the lion has roared and the people have seen the slain lamb. Boys and girls, do you remember the lion when he is first mentioned and that blessed prophecy? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And as the scriptures say, when that lion roars, how can men not prophesy? We can think back to the very beginning of the garden when there is the blessed prophecy that Though the serpent strike at the heel, his head will be crushed by the seed of the woman. The book of Revelation unpacks all of those prophecies, all of that theology, all the grand, great work of God. All those things that are called mystery. All those things that are called mystery. Mystery is a key word in life. In life, we don't know what God is doing. We don't understand. There are things that haven't been revealed to us yet. And it's a key word in the scriptures, too. It's a key word in the scriptures, too. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And in the context of his parabolic ministry, As he speaks these words that reveal and conceal according to the prophecy of Isaiah and the word of God. Our Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13 verse 11. He said unto them because it is given unto you know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. The parables are the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, from the very beginning of the scriptures, has been as we 'll see through the course of our message, the coming of the kingdom of heaven and the great and grand work of the Lord Jesus Christ in bringing that kingdom. The same language is used in Mark chapter four, verse eleven, and Luke chapter eight, verse ten, and turn back with me to the book of Revelation. The same language of mystery is used there, in fact, I hope you would understand through your own reading of the book of Revelation how mysterious it can be. But in the midst of its mystery, as those things signified in it, bring such clarity. As the Spirit opens our eyes, much like the Lord Jesus did with his apostles. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the seven angels of the churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Here is the mystery of the Lord Jesus in the midst of his people. Here is the king in the midst of his blessed kingdom. And then further turn with me now to Revelation chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. To Revelation chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. And swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and things that are in, and earth and the things that are in, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished, as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. What is this mystery? It was declared through the prophets. The imagery of the book through its cycles goes back, we could say, just by one example to Revelation chapter 5, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, is found worthy to open the book to take the scroll from the Father and the rest of His glorious plan can unfurl and find its realization. The mystery of God's work in bringing His kingdom We'll consider that further, but we need to note that language of mystery isn't just used by the Lord Jesus. It isn't just used by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. The Apostle Paul uses it all the time. And whether we took the time to consider many different examples, but we won't for later on, you can consider Romans chapter 11, 25 and 26, and Romans chapter 16, 25 and 27, He uses the same word, mystery. He uses that same idea of mystery. Paul to emphasize the glorious plan of God's work of having a people and bringing together Jew and Gentile. While John, it seems, focuses so much on the unfolding of God's blessed plan. The two overlapping beautifully but with slightly different emphasis. And we find we could say that mystery made clear in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 7. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 7. We'll consider how this is indeed clearly what God is doing. Not only in the context of the book of Revelation briefly, but further through the rest of Scripture to see what God's purpose is. How he carries out that purpose according to his own plan. And brothers and sisters in the Lord, our place in it. Well, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 7. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his God, and God himself shall be with them and be their God the realization of that amazing covenant promise and relationship, the consummation of that kingdom witnessed and shown, begun and ushered in and finally realized that great promise from so long ago come to completion. It's amazing how many different commentators tie this back into kingdom language. But whenever there is covenant language, whenever there is kingdom language, We are talking about a special relationship between God and his people. And to call it covenant is certainly accurate. Perhaps abstract to some. But there's another word for it that shows the results of that blessed relationship and that is in verse 7. That is sonship. That is adoption. He that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be My son, there seems to be an amplification of the idea of kingdom in the realization of adoption, and this runs through the scriptures as we will see. But notice that is also the answer to our question in the beginning What is God doing? He is building his kingdom. What is God doing? He is redeeming His family. What is our blessed Father doing? He is making sons through the work of His Son. And when we grasp that by spirit-worked faith and all the realities that adoption brings and the glorious blessing of having a heavenly Father, then it doesn't make a difference what happens in our lives. It doesn't make a difference what the government does or doesn't do to us. It doesn't make a difference what diseases or plagues may scavenge. It doesn't make a difference what satanic plots may unfold. It doesn't make a difference what may happen. Because we know what God is doing. And as we'll see further, just like perhaps we as children didn't need to understand what our mothers and fathers were doing, as long as they were there to hold us, as long as they faithfully provided for us, we can be at peace. We see this, this blessing of what God is doing in making sons through the work of His Son as His ultimate purpose. As His ultimate purpose. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're moving now from the intensification of the language of the book of Revelation as the different versions of the same history have unfolded through the book. Whether they are the initial visions of the judgments on this sinful world that flow out of the throne room. Whether it is the language of the battle and conflict between the woman and the dragon, the devil and the church. And the glorious victory of Christ. And like we find it expressed in Revelation chapter 21 in God's ultimate dwelling with His people, and them not being only a people, but a family. We see as the intensification of the language of Revelation would move on, we see this spoken clearly by the Apostle Paul. We'll consider three different examples. The first one from Ephesians 1 beginning at verse 3, and reading as far as verse 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us "...unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will." According to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. in whom ye also trusted after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise." Same glorious emphasis, God sovereignly bringing to pass His will, the great mystery being realized as the counsel of God is unfolded, and that is that He will have Himself a people, He will have Himself a family, and He will do it through the work of His Son. Same beautiful imagery explained perhaps in another way, in richer depth, greater complex- complexity in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, where we find again in the language of the Apostle Paul this global emphasis, or rather I should say this universal emphasis. Beginning at verse 3 of Galatians 4. Even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, what an idea that is, is it not? The fullness of time. When it was the right time. When it was the time of times. When it was the time when all things would turn on the hinge and be realized. In the fullness of time. God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? Why did Christ come? Why humiliate Himself by coming under the law? Why be incarnate to keep that law? To redeem them that were under the law. Why were they redeemed? Why were they brought back? Why did He have to pay that price? Why the crucifixion? That we might receive the adoption of sons. That's why. Jesus had to come to borrow language of 1 Corinthians 15 as the last Adam and take upon himself the law that no God or king should be bound by, but he himself, his divine person in the flesh, took upon himself that law so sinners could become sons. That is why. Then verse 6 continues. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of His Son in your hearts crying, Abba, Father. The work of the Son in making sons so sinners who became sons could have a Father. A Father who would listen to them warmly. A Father who would hold them in His lap and bend His ear to their every need and already be providing everything even before they ask. That's why. That's why God is doing everything. Turn with me to one last example, to Romans chapter 8. To Romans chapter 8. I hope Romans chapter 8 verse 28 is a tremendous comfort to you as a child of God. It's a verse, if I'm not careful, I quote in almost every sermon. It's a verse I think of myself almost every day. But where is the reason for its comfort? That comes in the verses that follow. In verse 28 of Romans 8, And we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate and follow the reasoning with me. This is where all the comfort is. All things will work together for the good of them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. How? Why? For whom he did foreknow, God knew them and chose them and loved them from eternity. He also did predestinate. He sovereignly, he sovereignly chose to bring to pass what he knew and loved. To be conformed to the image of his Son. Now the last step of the reasoning. Therefore known, They're predestined to be in the image of His Son. Why? Here is the basis for all the comfort. That He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus has to have brothers and sisters. Sinners have to be made sons. There is a plan of God that must be realized, a mystery that must be unfurled. This is God's will, and this, as Romans chapter 28 says, is the basis for our comfort. God's love, God's calling, God's foreknowing, God's predestinating all marvelous, rich, sovereign, comforting concepts to the child of God, but it ends and is based in, and as we'll see further, is experienced through adoption, being a part of His family. The purpose is to have sons. The language of Revelation and the, the growing power of the imagery and its focus as it builds throughout the book highlights that. In chapter 21, verses 3 through 7, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, clearly confirms it. But how is it accomplished? How is it accomplished? How does Jesus get brothers and sisters? Boys and girls, you know how you get brothers and sisters. The Lord blesses your family. And whether your mother has another baby, or whether you adopt a child into your home that was somebody else's, shall we say, physical or genetic child, they are now a part of your family legally. Spoken to many, many families that have had the blessing of adopting children. There's no difference between a born child and an adopted child. They're both the children of the family. How does God get brothers and sisters for the son? Long ago in the Garden of Eden, the Lord made Adam and Eve. But he made them not only in His image. Knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. They made them in His image as rational and moral creatures. But then He condescended to them and entered into a covenant and said, I will reward you with eternal life. I will as it were confirm or make your standing as men like Candlish from the Free Church of Scotland or Thornwell from the Southern Presbyterians. I will make you my son and daughter by my gracious work of covenant upon your obedience. But you remember the history, don't you, boys and girls? Did Adam and Eve obey? No, they didn't. Do you and I obey? No, we don't. Adam and Eve could have become the sons and daughters of God by their works, because of God's condescending covenant grace. But they didn't. And you and I, from this point on, can never become God's children, part of that blessed family, by our own works, can we? Maybe you think, but we are the children of God. We already are. Are you thinking of the message of the Freemasons, the fatherhood of God, and the brotherhood of man? Maybe you're thinking of what some call the doctrine of creaturely sonship. How does that fit with the Old Testament imagery? Were the Philistines the sons of God? Out of Egypt I have called my son. Israel is the son of God. And all the language of that special sonship finds its realization in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I, child of God, become sons, and as it were, sons and daughters of God, not by what Adam and Eve have done, not by what you and I could never do, but what the eternal Son of God Himself did for us. He, through His work, brings us into that family according to the will of His Father and by the power of the Spirit. The purpose of God is to have a family for His Son, so He will. And He made the plan, and He even completed it. He even completed it. And now we turn back to those passages we've already considered. Galatians chapter 4, again please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. We considered as we read that passage the purpose, but now the plan. The plan. The purpose was to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons and have the privilege of the Spirit Confirming this blessed work as we cry out in our hearts, Abba Father. But how was it done? What is the plan that accomplishes the purpose? This is the plan. When the fullness of time was come, according to prophecy, to fulfill all the imagery, to realize what God Himself had shown through His mighty acts of wonder in the Old Testament. That since the first Adam, Earthian of the earth, to borrow the language of the Apostle Paul, came, so now the Lord from heaven, the last Adam. God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Notice how those three things fit together. It is God's eternal Son. Jesus never became the Son of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, He is declared to be the Son of God, but He never became the Son. He has always been the Son. But that Son became man, became flesh. His divinity assumed to it humanity. And that one glorious person of the eternal Son has two natures, divine and human, the one Lord Jesus Christ. He, the eternal Son, took to Himself our flesh, Made of a woman. Why? So he could do this, and this is perhaps, as some of our Scottish forefathers have emphasized so much, is the real step of humiliation that he might come under the law. Some would argue there is no disservice done to the eternal Son in all his glory by assuming to himself humanity but there is certainly humiliation done to that divine person by His taking upon Himself the law. That's how those three things tie together. That's how we as sinners would become family with Him and have a heavenly Father. The eternal Son, come in the flesh, under the law. That was the plan. And it has been done. to redeem them that were under the law. Notice they are no longer under the law. He was under the law. We are under grace. Romans chapter 6 says, when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive or that we should have or would have the adoption of sons. Turn with me now to Philippians chapter 2, where we find the same thing. Different language used, different emphasis in the argument of Paul. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Here in this, we certainly see the glory due, the eternal Son of God, because of the work He has done "...who being in the form of God," Philippians chapter 2 verse 6, "...who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, rather that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The work is done. Every knee must bow. All praise will be given. Our service is required of us as those who have been redeemed and made a part of that family. Let me ask you another question to confirm it to you yet another way. What did the Lord Jesus say just before He ascended up into heaven? What did He say? All power, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto Me. Not by His divine might as the Eternal Son. He already had that. He was the breath that brought in creation all that is. But now as the Eternal Son of God in the flesh, no longer under the law, who completed His work, who has redeemed His people, is worthy as the gates of heaven are thrown open to Him and He ascends victorious to be at the right hand of His Father. Revelation, unfolding all of that time and time again in different ways, signified differently according to the structure of the book and highlighting the grandeur of what Jesus Christ has done the lion of the tribe of Judah, the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent head, he who has his people, his kingdom, his sons. The purpose is to have sons. The plan was to make sons by the work of the son. That's what God is doing. Is that comfortable to you? Does that make your heart sing? Does that make you, as it were, inside shout, praise the Lord? Brothers, as we go about the business of synod, and there is difficult issues on the agenda as there always is. Do we do so with hope? Do we do so with expectation? Do we do so knowing our Lord Jesus Christ is building his church and even using the likes of us? congregation, when you have faced the challenges of COVID, when you face the challenges at work, when you face the challenges in your family, when you wonder what the future may bring and you ask the question on the way to work in the midst of tears in your bed what is God doing? Is there comfort in the fact He has His purpose and it is being realized? And it is all according to his plan which has been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ and is unfurling before us just as the book of Revelation foretells. All in harmony with what God has already said to us through the rest of the inspired and infallible revelation given. Is there that strengthening and comfort for you? If not, perhaps it's because you've forgotten your place in it. The book of Revelation in chapter 21 highlights for us by the beauty of the language not only this emphasis on God having a people and God having a family, but about their place in it. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. The children of God have a place in this plan. Our place is to overcome. How do we do so? How do we rightly understand our place in this plan? How do we overcome? Well, the first is we must acknowledge two things. We must acknowledge two things. First, that this is God's purpose. That this is God's great purpose. Through the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem His people and have His family. To reveal Himself as it were through the Son's work in making sons. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9 verses 21 through 23 we find the Lord's sovereign work of self-revelation through the unfolding of the mystery, whether we think of it in the fully Johannine sense in the book of Revelation or perhaps the Pauline sense about salvation coming to include the Gentiles in the fullness of these things promised. In Romans chapter 9, verses 21 through 23, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if a God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and that he might make known willing to show and make known that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory the language of revelation of revealing the mystery to show us to show us who he is and what he is doing his purpose we must acknowledge that we must acknowledge that if not what hope will there be for us in this plan if we would be like the objector in Romans chapter 9 and say Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? If we would murmur back to God, if we would claim his sovereign place as potter, as our own, if we would do what perhaps our first parents clearly sought to do, Eve being deceived, Adam not, to be like God, to decide what is good and evil for ourselves and not have God do it for us, to be self made people, to be independent. And to my brothers and sisters in the United States who are my countrymen, when patriotism turns into idolatry of the satanic type, like it did in the garden, we have gone wrong. But to those who have forgotten God in communism, atheism, critical race theory, and we think we can decide our own gender by the functioning of our own will, we have gone equally as far into nonsense, deluded ourselves with the first lie, and clothed ourselves in rebellion. We must acknowledge His sovereignty, His purpose, and bend the knee to it. Have you done that? Have you ever said, yea, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done? The Lord brings sinners to that point when he is working in their life. And child of God, you felt this. And by the blessed work of the Spirit, you continue to, time and time again, being brought forward to him as he exposes more of your own sin to you. As you once again realize what an idolater you've become and how you must once again come to Him and, like your older brother said and did, say, Not my will, but Thy will be done. We must acknowledge Him. And with that is not only truth and the glory of our God and the humbling of ourselves there is the blessed knowledge of our standing as family. You cannot acknowledge the sovereignty of God and His plan truly and come to Him in repentance, submitting your own heart, submitting your own plan, submitting your own thoughts, submitting your own desires, without at the same time de facto confessing, I am a child of God. Because enemies of God, people who would be their own gods, whether they be right-wing or left-wing, whether they be small government fanatics or deluded people of the extreme left, they would never concede that. No sinner's heart ever would. Because it is bent against God. To use the language of the Apostle John, we love the darkness and will never come to the light. We never will. We never want to. We're not able to. We are always like the cockroaches who flee from the light into the darkness. You ever been in a run-down apartment building? Maybe you own a rental property that's kind of slid down the hill because you made the wrong choice about a renter. I remember quite well when our neighbors got cockroaches in the apartments I grew up in. didn't happen often, but when it did, they spread everywhere. You walk into the kitchen at night, turn the light on and they left. That's what we're like when the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. To use the language of Romans chapter 1, the truth we have in our hands, we use an unrighteousness and will not use right. We will run into the darkness rather than come to the light. And when we do, it is only because we have been drawn by the Father to the Son. And even there, we are a part of that blessed family. To acknowledge him and his purpose is at the same time to acknowledge our standing as sons and part of that family. And as a part of that family, what are we to do? Well, after acknowledging, the second thing is to trust. This is what our older brother would like us to do. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. When we pray to our Father, this is what our older brother says. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking whether because their God is deaf and you need to repeat it so much that they be heard, perhaps interpreting it in the mocking way Elijah might, or in the fact that you need to prove it and demonstrate your seriousness to your Father that you really mean it, so get to work. Jesus condemns that interpretation. Be not ye therefore like unto them, For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. You don't need to prove anything to Him. You don't need to earn anything with Him. You can't. He is the Father that will bestow it upon you because He loves you and He knows. You are to trust Him. Notice how the Lord Jesus taught us to pray and the Heidelberg Catechism expresses this so amazingly well. So amazingly well. When the Lord Jesus says, our Father which art in heaven, that that's how we are to pray. He says that this is done, the instructor in the catechism, to incite in us, to excite in us a sense of his fatherly character, that when we pray to the Father, we pray as a part of that family because of the work of the Son. In fact, our Lord Jesus, we could say Himself, in Luke chapter 18, gives this lesson another way to the apostles and to us as to how we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. In Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, and they brought unto Him also infants. How able are infants? Can they even walk? Can they even crawl? Let alone, could they go to the refrigerator, open the door, pull out the cheese, grab the cheese slicer, get a piece of bread, butter it on both sides, grab the pan, turn on the stove, and fry a grilled cheese sandwich? (laughs) Absolutely not. Notice how these children are described. They brought unto him also infants that would touch them, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me. Forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. Infants and little children who can do nothing for themselves. I've been blessed with a little girl, my sixth child, who's going to turn two and she can walk, but that's about it. She can't get her own water. She can't change her own diaper. She's dependent on me and my wife for everything. That's how we must be with our Father. That is what our brother tells us. That is how we are partakers of this kingdom. That is how we are to pray. We could say even further, that is how we are to live. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 6. This time, verse 32. And we know the emphasis here is very clear. Because the contrast is between those who have a father and those who don't. He says in verse 31, Therefore, take no thought, or don't be anxious and don't worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. And what characterizes the Gentiles according to the Lord Jesus? For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. The Gentiles don't have a father. Don't be anxious and wonder what's going to happen. How will it work out? What is, what is going to happen? I, I need clothes. I need food. I was, ah, don't be that way. Don't be that way. You're acting like someone who doesn't have a father that will take care of you. My children don't worry about whether or not they're going to be able to eat. Because I have taken care of that. They don't worry if they're going to have enough clothing. Because I, as their father, have taken care of that. They don't need to worry if when they break the rules of our house, there will be punishments. Because I, as their father, will take care of that they don't have to worry about anything. I am the one that must train them and teach them, protect them and guard them and help them. Fathers, that is our calling for our children. But you and I, if we love the Lord and are called according to His purpose, if we have come to Him in repentance and faith, what are we to do? Remember we have a father. And what does that look like then? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take no thought. Take, therefore, no thought. Don't worry for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Notice this trusting brings us to what we would call our third thing, that is, our place in overcoming. And that is obeying. To find that peace of knowing what God is doing in making sons through the work of the Son. His great purpose. The plan already completed and the Spirit simply continuing to bring to pass those things that must yet soon come. We must, to know our place and keep our place, acknowledge Him and this plan. His purpose and our standing. In light of that, we must trust Him as our blessed older brother calls us to. And we must obey Him. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Not being under the law, but under grace. Not worrying about achieving the favor of the Father because our older brother, the eternal Son of God, has come under the law and suffered and risen. And we have our Father's favor. Out of that blessing, we live lives of thankfulness and obedience according to the law day by day. That's even how the Lord wants us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. It's really hard to translate in Greek. It's really slippery. Give us today's bread today. Give us what we need day by day. Spiritually, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And to paraphrase it, take it one day at a time. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. We obey. Moment by moment, situation by situation, calling by calling, we obey, trusting in the fullness of the work of our Savior. Incidentally, that's why so beautifully in Galatians chapter 4, if we follow the teaching of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, Galatians chapter 4 highlights so clearly what is going on in our hearts already. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Do you cry out, Daddy, Daddy, help me, help me? Daddy, Daddy, help me, help me? Or do you cry out, Father, I can take care of it. It's okay, Father, I can take care of it. Child of God is the one that cries out, Daddy, Daddy, help me, help me. Fathers, when your children come up to you and say, Daddy, Daddy, help me, help me, what do you do? We're evil, and we know how to give good gifts. We're evil, pernicious beings that rebelled against our Creator, and we are even moved with compassion and pity at our children. How much more the Father who the Son tells us to pray to. Will He not be? What kind of motive is that indeed for obedience? And that brings us to the fourth thing, acknowledgement, trust, obedience, and comfort. That is all part of our place in overcoming. But Revelation chapter 21 emphasizes in bold, beautiful language comfort it does in verse 7 emphasizing overcoming he that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his son and he shall I will be his God and he shall be my son but notice out of the standing of adoption there is comfort as the imagery is magnified Perhaps eschatologically, as we perhaps unpack it, even in the context of the coming down of God to his covenant people, who are his adopted children, but then thinking of adoption perhaps in a fuller final sense, whereas the books are open and judgment is pronounced, they are officially called his people, if we understand it that way, as some might. But notice here, the language is saturated with comfort with strengthening, with encouragement, and with the imagery of fatherhood. Verse 3 of Revelation 21. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. The dwelling of God is with men. A holy God is with a sinful people. A holy God has come to be with his people, his sons. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. You know what it's like to be with your mom and dad when you really want to be with your mom and dad, don't you? Whether you're little and you lost your mom and dad in the shopping mall, or whether now when you think about the fact your mother and your father have passed, and you want to be with them and you can't. The pain of abusive and destructed relationships where you wanted a right relationship with your father, but you couldn't because of past sin. Here the relationship is fully realized. And what does it look like? That language of fellowship in verse 3 rolls over illustratively in verse 4. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. What does the Father not take care of in those verses? Wipe away in the tears, death itself gone, sorrow gone, crying gone, and pain. All those things have passed away. There's comfort there, isn't it? This is what we are living in now. The structure of the book of Revelation emphasizes that. We are living in these last days as the book cyclically unpacks with greater and greater signification and imagery and different concepts as they build throughout the book and culminates in God's glorious work of His keeping His covenant, of His redeeming His people, of His having His family, the Son doing His work and making sons. And as we wait for His blessed return, no matter what challenge, synodically, congregationally, familially, we do so taking comfort in what our God is doing and what our God has done as we remember our place before Him, acknowledging, trusting, obeying, and taking the comfort we so greatly need. But maybe you're thinking, I'm not a part of that family. i not a part of that family. Maybe you're beginning for the first time as the Spirit works. You're not a part of that family. You don't view God as a heavenly Father. You view Him as a judge. And to be honest, it's one or the other. You view God as your heavenly Father in light of the Son dealing and having received your curse under the law, or you do. You're under the law, or He is. You can call it creaturely fatherhood if you want, but it doesn't make any sense. You're still facing an eternal judge. Rather, in light of the marvelous mystery of God's work and the fact that God, for whatever reason, known only to Himself, would take good pleasure in sending His own Son to suffer and die for people like me and people like you, To see and realize you deserve punishment and that your sins have separated you from him. And you have to answer for that. Rather than living fearfully before God as a judge that way, always come to him in repentance and faith and say, Please, for the sake of the work of thy son, the Lord Jesus, accept me. Make me a part of this family. Wash me in his blood so I may be accounted with thee. So I may have thee as a blessed heavenly father. That you would know your place. Acknowledging your sin and his purpose. To stand as a son. To trust in him for not only your eternal salvation. But for every aspect of your life and calling. And seek to serve him just as before you served yourself and Satan. Whether you realized it or not. And trust in the blessed supply of your God. His purpose his plan and our place. Congregation, that's what God is doing. Brothers at Synod, this is what our God is doing. And that should fill us with hope. That should fill us with courage. That should fill us with encouragement no matter what they do. This is what the Scottish Covenanters faced. This is what the Puritans faced. This is what the early church faced. No matter what happens or what we are called to face, like our brothers and sisters have done, our God will prove faithful and we will always be more than conquerors because we have a loving Heavenly Father for the sake of His eternal Son who is bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. And our blessed elder brother who bore our curse. What is God doing? Amazing things. As he is making himself his family. By turning sinners into sons. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, our great heavenly Father. We thank thee for thy purposes in all things. Lord, the Scriptures reveal so much to us, and Lord, they are too high for us and beyond us. But Lord, Thy people confess they are filled with comfort for them. For those, Lord, who do not know Thee, blessed Father, draw them to the Son. Make them saints and sons in the work of the Son. Declare them righteous and justify them so they may be a part of this blessed family. And we pray, Spirit, that would sanctify us, that we would live evermore out of our standing as sons and daughters. And Lord, equip us, not only, Lord, as thy redeemed people, but for those who are called to bear a special office, help us with the business of tomorrow. Remember the chairman, And above all, grant us the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in these weighty matters. Lord, bless us further this night. Grant us rest and strength. We pray this asking for our sins to be forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.